Hello, campers. Are y'all doing good out there? Here's to hoping that you said yes. But if you were on the fence, then don't worry, because you're listening to a new episode of Campfire Adventures, which means only one thing, that your day's going to get better. And if you didn't know who I am, I'm your host, Dylan. And we have a special guest today. Our co-host is... Estrella. Welcome back. Thank you. Excited to be back. We're excited to have you, and the boys are also here, and we just like to shout out everybody out there in podcast land for listening, because I appreciate that you like these episodes and this podcast, and it's just, it's a lot of fun, and we're just excited to have Stray here, the boys here, because this week we actually decided to dive right back into our Halloween spirit and take a page out of last year's Halloween season of episodes, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, And maybe you're just thinking, like, wait a second, it's not even Halloween yet. What is he talking about? It's not October. You're completely correct. That is true. It's not October. But it's the spirit that I'm after. And I feel like for a while now, I've slowly been getting into the spirit. And if we can get into Christmas super early, then... That's true. Exactly. Why not Halloween? And the reason why I'm super excited is because basically what we're doing is we're taking classic or some of our favorite horror movies and looking at the stories that inspired them. And then, basically, we just tell the true story of that movie. So, get ready for Movie Mondays again, because last year, what we did was we told the story, and then on Mondays, we'd watch the movie. So, we're going to do that. And if you have any movies that you want us to cover, or a story that you want us to try to figure out if we can solve, send us a message, and we'll try to get into it and see if we can make it happen. But as for this week's episode, we're starting it off with one of my favorite horror movie series, The Conjuring. And last year, we did the first two movies. So this year, we're covering the true story behind The Conjuring 3. The devil made me do it. And with all that said, I think it's time for us to just get into it. So it's time to grab a drink. We're chilling around the portable campfire. And it's time for us to get into this week's episode. So to start this episode off, I'd like to say that we're going to cover more of the true crime genre this time around. And we're also going to have that supernatural aspect of a story because how else would it fit in the catalog of our podcasts? But this one, it's going to follow the true stories and events that inspired the movie The Conjuring 3. So we're talking about real people, real stories, and real crimes. So if you think that that might be a little too much for you, then no worries. But I'd like to say that we have plenty of other catalog that you can listen to. And we are going to be touching on some sensitive subjects within this episode. So in no way do I mean to disrespect anybody or any of the people involved in this story. But I just wanted to give you a heads up because it might be heavy. So no pressure, but we're going to get into it. And if you haven't actually seen this movie, because, Estrella, I know that you were on the I fence. I have not. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it. But you watched the trailer. and I did watch the trailer and the opening scene, apparently. <laughs> it looks, it's really good. It, yeah. It's, I love The Conjuring because they make it so creepy. And Vera Farmiga, to me, the lead oh, actress. I know. She's yeah. so good. And the way she, like, does her acting with it, it's yeah. like she's really scared. She's very genuine in her acting. Too, I feel which it. Which is really good. And um, so anyway, so, you know, 
no worries if you haven't seen it. I think it's actually probably a really good idea for you not to see it and hear this podcast because you're going to hear the true story behind the inspiration. Right. And then when you get a chance to watch the movie, then you'll be like, okay. We get the real one, not the beefed up Hollywood version. Yeah, they always have like some cinematic aspects to it. So let's just get into it. Picture it. Brookfield, Connecticut. The year was 1980 and we find ourselves in a town that as of recent has been recommended as one of the best places to call home in the state of Connecticut. Now, I mean, this town borders New York, so you have the city right there. And the schools are supposed to be good. The population isn't too big. So all in all, it sounds pretty good to me. However, the events that took place in the year 1980 and the following year would make this town famous for so many other reasons. There was a young couple who found themselves in the mix of a murder that to the town of Brookfield, Connecticut, would almost seem inconceivable. So the couple was Debbie Glatzel and Arnie Johnson. And at the time, Debbie was 25 and Arnie was 18. And they're a couple, correct? They're a couple. Okay. Correct. The two of them, they found themselves in like a committed relationship and were actually planning on getting married. And very near in the future, that was the plan. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that you might be, you know, like, wait a second, hold up, wait a minute, let me put some church in in that one for a second. (laughs) What did he say? And that's okay if you thought that, but I'm not going to get hung up on that detail right now because we have so much more to explore with this case. Mm -hmm. And this is just the tip. So the two were a couple, and to those of them around them, it seemed like things in their lives were about to get started, like they were going to look for a house, they were going to get married, and even start a family of their very own. But before they could move on with their plans, Debbie wanted to make sure all was good with her family. And I'm sure, like, that's what I would do. Like, okay, we're all good. Right, most people do, yeah. Yeah, we can afford to, like, I don't have to be here to pay rent kind of thing. And so she's just checking on them, and specifically, she wanted to make sure that her little brother was okay. And it was for good reason, too, because in... The year 1980, her younger brother, David, was going through a bit of a tough time. So it was believed that he had a learning disability. Okay. The family just wasn't sure exactly how to go about right. helping him. Right, it's also him. the 80s, so learning disabilities, I feel like, were... Yeah, it wasn't really still. thought of. It was right. just like, oh, he's just not feeling or well right now. Or he's lazy or whatever, right. Exactly, and that's okay. what we're going to get into. So they didn't really know what was going on. It was believed that it was a learning disability, but... Like you said, we weren't really going in and, like, we figured out it's this and this is the treatment. Right. So he was around, at this time, around the age of 11, and it seemed like something wasn't right with his behavior. Like, he wasn't acting like himself. You know, it was concerning to both Debbie and her family. And it was so much concerning that Arnie actually decided that he would move in just to have an extra set of eyes on the family. Go ahead. So he moved in with her family. With her family. Like, not them together and then the little brother came? It was, like, all together with the family. All together. Okay. Yeah, with the Glatzel family. And did he have any experience with troubled youth? Or was he just like, hey, let me just move in so I could just keep an extra set of eyes on him? I think what happened was they were so committed to starting their life together that instead of just, like, putting pause on it, like, he figured, well, I could just move in. We'd be together. We'd get things, like, moving forward with right. everything. And then... We can just... Right, being supportive. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Because if he didn't, wouldn't that just be more questionable? Right, yeah. That's true. Okay. Now, according to reports, David told his family that he was actually being tormented 
And she said this because I think he wanted his family to really understand why he might be acting different. And on his initial reports, he called the tormentor an older man. Okay, because that was my follow-up question, was he's 11 years old, mm -hmm. it's pre-teenager, it's very normal for them to be acting out of character. But there's like a tangible, I guess not tangible, but there's like a real person, there's a real thing that's affecting his behavior. Exactly. Okay. And now I'm not sure how any of you would actually handle this, but to me, like I'd initially be like an old person's giving you a hard time. <laughs> I'm calling the cops yeah. and then I'm going over to whoever's causing my kids some problems and I'm going to go handle it. And then right, the police show up and I'm like, did you die for you? You're welcome. But here you go. <laughs> you know, like, I just, I couldn't imagine. And so it was a little bit later, but David decided that he was going to clarify what he meant by the torment. And he actually said it wasn't coming from a physical person. It was an entity, something. Now, I'm assuming, you know, hearing this information from their younger brother, it only kept Debbie more hesitant from deciding to move on with her life with Arnie. Yeah. You know, and I would assume that Arnie and the family themselves would be like, okay, not a physical person, more of like a, a being, like I'm not really sure. And I am getting a little distracted with the story, but basically David started to not be able to sleep and he wouldn't be able to sleep through the night and... It was because whoever or whatever this old man actually was, was keeping him up and it wouldn't let the torment stop. Now I'm thinking that maybe the Glatzel family wasn't really putting too much stock into the idea of the, you know, tormenting imaginary man. Because what I'm thinking is like, okay, first of all, if there was a physical being, it's like, okay, now we understand. Right. But now I think maybe when he tried to clarify it, it might be like, so your imaginary friend is right. stopping also, us? Also, like... It sounds like right now it's just more maybe like hovering, um, maybe just like lurking around in corners. It's not necessarily anything physical where like there's marks on him, mm -hmm. nothing like that, right? Because there's no physical proof to the family. So they do think it is very much like an imaginary friend. Yeah, it's just like his actions, his behavior okay. at this point. But this is over the course of time. So we started off the story, I'd say in the mid-80s. And we're escalating. So okay. it's it's slowly progressing. Because before he didn't actually ever say who was tormenting him. But now it's like, oh, there's a man. Mm -hmm. So the family, I, w I think that they were kind of just like, okay, David, like, we know you're tired. You got to make sure you go to bed. You got to make sure you, know, you get your stuff done. So things get a little bit more because it's not just an imaginary friend. And that's what I'm, I'm piecing together. Obviously, I watched the movie, too, so I'm like, it's not an imaginary friend. You know, it's a thing. <laughs> so according to a website that I got some information from, it's uh, known as allthatsinteresting.com, David took things a step further and decided that in order to help his family understand why he couldn't sleep or who he was being tormented by, he was quoted as saying, it's a man with big black eyes, a thin face with animal-like features, jagged teeth, pointed ears, and hooves for feet. Oh, that is terrifying. This is what he described to his family. Kid. Okay. Yeah, it's the Doja Cat video. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just showed it to Australia. But it's terrifying. Like I, I couldn't imagine. Like right, yeah. First, I mean, it's... the jagged teeth, and I mean, this kid is what eleven. He's eleven. That's terrifying. I mean, even as an adult, air Person. quotes around adult. Yeah. There's, it's terrifying to think about because, I mean, you're just chilling at home and there's like hooves running around. I think when I read this, my heart just about sank. Yeah. 
Because it's bad enough to think a human person might be messing with my little brother or, you know, my kid. But then to hear the description, like, of, like it's, oh, it's not your friendly, imaginary friend. It's right. this... this... Is an entity that it doesn't matter how big or how strong you are. This is something that's really otherworldly that could come and do a lot of damage. It's terrifying. Yeah, it's like if the supernatural sorts with the malevolent essence to it. Mm -hmm. Just the description alone. And, like, honestly, I just... It, it, to me, this is what I would imagine the devil looking like. And it's just like, how the beep does anyone deal with that? <laughs> yeah. So this family wasn't going to just sit back and do nothing. Obviously, they loved David, and they wanted to do everything that they could. So they got in touch with the local church, and they let them know that something was going on with their son and that they needed help getting answers. Now, to take things a step further, they decided that they were going to ask the church to reach out to the world-famous investigators, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Now... You might have your own opinions about these two, but they play a huge role in so many stories, and we wouldn't have details about these stories without their presence. Now, you can have whatever opinion you want. I've heard that they make things worse. I've heard that they've helped people. I've heard a little bit of everything. I'm not here to do an episode about them, you know, and their travels. They wrote enough books about everything. But we need their stories in order to help understand what happened to this family, the Glatzels, with Arnie Johnson's involvement with it. Right, and I think regardless of the outcome, like shout out to the church for having those connects to be bringing those in, like to get any support. Exactly. I can't remember. I can't imagine walking into a church now and being like, "Hey, I need some help," and then having them turn to the Ed and Lorraine Warren. Exactly. Like, yeah, she's a clairvoyant, and he's yeah. a demonologist, and that's what they made their career off of. And you're completely right. Like, would I go to the mission and be like, sanctuary, sanctuary? <laughs> like, I know that, that... Hey, God, it's me. <laughs> Where are your friends at? <laughs> and obviously, like, also exorcisms. Like, can we think about that for yeah. a second? Like, does that still happen? Uh, yeah, and that's... I mean, all these stories that we hear, too, are, like, 80s. Mm -hmm. The most recent. So it's like... And a lot in Connecticut, now that I think about it. It's the East Coast. That's an East Coast problem. But... Well, hopefully, that's hopefully it's not going any further. So the Glatzel family, right? They reach out to the Warrens through the church, and they're asking for help from either the church or them if, if they can provide any answers. And it seemed like David's situation was only starting to get worse at this point. So claims were being made that he was waking up with bruises now, and that he wasn't just like being hurt during the evenings. He started to be tormented during the day as well. So the church had the house blessed, but still the torment went on. And then the Warrens came in and evaluated the family and David. And the Warrens, they actually wrote a book. So what I've learned about the Warrens is that they don't charge people for their services. They don't come to the families and say like, okay, we can help you. you. Exactly. But $50,000. Yeah. But I think that the church was the one that was like financing some of the things. And then... The Warrens were able to write books about every single case. Oh. So it's like, that's where the questionable antics come in. But there was a book written about this, and uh, Lorraine and Ed wrote it with um, Gerald Bertel, and it's entitled The Devil in Connecticut. And then also to help me find some more information, I watched a TV program that they were on, and you can see it on YouTube. It had Ed and Lorraine Warren, and they were being interviewed about this case, and it's titled, <laughs> it's a long title. It's uh, titled, The Devil Made Me Do It, The Warrens, The Conjuring 3, The Real Story. <laughs> and I'll post that. Oh, okay. it's, it's a long title. <laughs> but um, I'll post it, and you can watch this about 30 minutes. I actually watched it twice just to figure out 
what was true and what wasn't true with it. And obviously how much I wanted to go into that story because, you know, every side has their own version. Right. So in my research and after watching this video, it seemed like the church was unable to help David. So the Warrens came into the picture and like I said, they interviewed the family. And basically after they started interviewing the family, they get just got a little bit of pieces from every single person. And Ed and Lorraine Warren themselves said, when they were talking to David, like they'd see this little boy, this 11 year old boy, like coloring or doodling. And he'd almost completely transform before their eyes. Like he'd lose that innocence and he'd be another being. Lorraine was quoted as saying on that show, like I saw this dark mass forming around him and I just knew that it was a demon. And he'd start hissing, he'd start cursing. They claimed that he attacked his family. And it just, these things weren't normal things that David would do. Right. And things just escalated worse and worse and worse. And if you remember, we were talking about this young couple. We were talking about Arnie Johnson and Debbie Glatzel. And you might be wondering like, dang, this is all happening. But I've actually watched The Conjuring 3 and how does this all tie into what happened in the movie? So it gets better because I think that his family cared so much about David that they were willing to do anything. And Arnie Johnson joined this family and I think that he was almost willing to do anything too. Well, it came to a point where he did do whatever he could do because he was so tired of seeing this little boy like be tormented. Allegedly, like this is how the story goes. And so instead of seeing this little David wake up with bruises, not being able to sleep, being tormented by this beast, he figured that maybe he can handle it a little bit better than him. Wow, what a man. Well, Where did they find him, Amazon? <laughs> I think it's at the Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> oh, okay. So what happened is he basically challenged the demonic presence that was in David and just said, like, leave this child alone. Wow, that is okay. Uh, let me tell you, I think one thing that I learned from this podcast is you do not interact with paranormal yeah beings at all you don't know who you're talking to yeah. you don't know what they want and what they're trying to be all about and if ed and lorraine warren said anything that i would believe it's don't go outside of what you know right and i think especially and i think i did see that clip in the movie mm -hmm. or in the trailer where he's like don't talk to it like i'm all for spooky stuff but the moment you pull out a ouija board or you start talking to spirits i'm out of there yeah so i think it's very telling how much how devoted he was to be able to take this on despite it's not i mean this little boy's not even really part of his family it's a family he's joining mm -hmm. so like it's yeah, not... no, i would never good for him exactly <laughs> so what happens is allegedly they had seen the boy levitate he had bruises he was cursing at people and then he even predicted that a murder would take place oh, okay. and so arnie johnson decides that you know what I'm 19 now because time's passing on. Everyone gets a little bit older. He's 19. Debbie's 26. David's still 11. But, you know, basically he tells the, the being, like, leave the boy alone. Like, take me on. Mm -hmm. And even Ed and Lorraine Warren, when you hear them, they, they talk about, like, we told him do not challenge the demons because they'll come for you. Yeah. So he starts to have little episodes of his own where people are like, you know, like, are you okay? He started to experience things a little bit more like what was going on with David. And to take things a bit further, like they were trying to get to the cause and the root of everything that happened with David and like how this all started. And from my understanding, David had gone out and found a well 
And when he found this well, when he looked inside, he said that's where things started to change in his life. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Was this well on their property or was it like... It was in the area. Okay. Yeah, it was exploring. Had anybody like had similar experiences with this well or was it like a one-time thing? Well, actually, Arnie did. Oh. So he decided that he was going to go to the same well and just see like what's going on. Like I've challenged these spirits. I don't think that he felt the effects because it doesn't just happen right away. Right. This thing was a progressive thing, which we've heard in our telling of what happened with David. Like, it didn't start off... Right, it was gradual. Gradual. And so it's happening, I think, from what I was able to find, the same way with Arnie. So, so sorry. Go just ahead. to confirm. So, Arnie went to the same well... Yes. ...after he had challenged the demons. Yes. Okay. And when he went to the well, he claims that he saw demons of sorts in the well. Did he see specifically that old man that was tormenting david or was that not in the source material you found i didn't find that in the source material actually and that's what i would have hoped to find because david also started to say that he saw other beings like an older man with you know flannel it wasn't the same like demonic looking man but that all ties into something that i was going to bring up is that Ed Warren, he had actually said that he had seen 43 different demonic spirits, like, haunting uh, David. Wow. And so that's why they warned Arnie against doing it, because it's just like, you don't know, like, we thought we were up against one, we're up against multiple. Yeah. And so it was at that point that things started to get worse and worse. And I think Arnie was on his way to a little spiral, in a sense. So basically... Things started to progress further and further for Arnie, but they would take the biggest turn, I think, in history on February 16th of 1981. So basically what happened is Arnie and his girlfriend, Debbie, they decided that they were going to go out and hang out with one of their friends, Alan Bono. And Alan Bono was a local in the area who owned a dog kennel, and he lived above it. Yeah. Love the dog lover. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. And so they were just hanging out and they had been friends for a while. They kind of knew each other. And one day they went out and they decided they were going to go get pizza and drink and have a good time. So they went back to his house. And Debbie was going there because she was going to check on the dogs because she actually worked there. And she decided that she was going to bring her cousin and they were going to bring Arnie's sister. Go ahead. So he was their friend, but also her boss? Yes. Okay. And so... I think his sister and then another friend. Okay. So there's three younger girls, Arnie, Debbie, Mm -hmm. and Alan. And so they all went to the dog kennel area. Mm -hmm. And things escalated because when they went to go eat this pizza, they were actually also drinking and they were having a good time. And they might have had a little bit of too much of a good time. And as the reports go, it seemed as though like Alan was giving... Debbie a hard time a little bit like he was more friendly maybe you know oh, okay. more so a little, little flirtatious okay. some liquid courage in him liquid courage and it was at 6 30 p.m when an event happened between arnie and alan now it's reported that arnie pulled out a pocket knife wait this is a 6 30 p.m and he was already drunk yikes yeah well um, they went out and had a good time and then oh, they were like you know okay. what we should All do right. Yeah, they were like, we should go to the dog kennel and check things out. Okay. So this is the heavy part because they got into this altercation and basically what happened was Arnie pulled out a knife and he stabbed Alan multiple times. Oh my goodness. Now the police came and they promptly arrested Arnie 
And they took Alan to the hospital, but his stab wounds were so intense that he died on the way there. Oh my gosh. And this all happened in front of young children. Like, right, I think yeah. the, the girls' age groups were like nine to like 13, and they were just going to see, you know, puppies. Yeah. And well, things got escalated. And the Warrens were still involved in this case. You know, like, we have a lot of things that transpired okay, here. Okay, hold on. Let's back up. Go ahead. So, this is happening at the same time that all this is going on with David. So, David's no longer under a possession. I was just going to, like, re-clarify the events that okay, happened. Okay. So, this is post... This is post when There's a our... gap. Is that correct? Like, when he kind of taunts the demon, mm-hmm. and then his symptoms, David's symptoms kind of subside. He's clearly not under any influence or possession at all there's like a period like a gap where everything seems to cool down it doesn't clarify that specifically in the source material but what it does say is that after the torment happened arnie was the one that started to go through those gradual changes gradual changes and that's exactly okay like what we're going to get into because this all plays a role into how i said that this town that they lived in was about to get famous for so many other reasons than just being a place that people wanted to live. Okay. Because the first thing we have here is a demon possession going mm-hmm. on. The next thing we have here is this stabbing, this death of Alan Bono was the first one to happen in the town's history. Oh, wow. Like in almost 200 years, no one had been murdered. It's the first one. First homicide ever. Exactly. Wow. Okay. And so now we have this kid who's 19 years old who's getting arrested for this murder. But things are going to get even bigger with this case because what happens is, is obviously they're going to go to trial and they're going to try to figure out what's the best form of justice with this case. So this whole thing is going to trial at this point. And so Arnie needs a defense attorney and he needs that defense attorney to come up with a plausible explanation for how this event transpired. Now, obviously, you know, his girlfriend, Debbie, at the time is claiming that she was being harassed and attacked. And, you know, Arnie was in a sense, you know, defending her for what happened. But when police tried to examine the evidence and explain exactly what went down that day, Arnie isn't able to help them put it together because he doesn't remember. He said within all of the two hours that happened, he has no recollection of the events happening, let alone he killed somebody that according to people in the local area, they were all friends. So it's just like the police are like, okay, we have this murder that happened what's going on and they're taking him to trial because he's like you know it's a homicide so he so the girlfriend is able to corroborate his story but there's other witnesses there were the three girls Did yes they testify or is it because they're minors they're just not or they just don't really my source material didn't really go into it oh, like it was just lightly mentioned and a lot of the source material didn't even mention that there were other witnesses oh, there wow okay. so it was like uh, trying to piece together and put together the most like cohesive story mm-hmm with making sure that it makes sense. But I had two places mention it was either two to three younger girls who went with them to the dog kennel that day. So this is all information that uh, Arnie's defense attorney, whose name is Martin Manella, and he takes all this information and starts to come up with the most logical explanation, something that works for Arnie, but something that also works for him. And what they come up with is the first time in history where they decide that the best form of defense is saying that he's innocent because he was possessed by demons at the time of the murder. Interesting. That's the first time in American history, at least that I know of, that anyone's tried to claim innocence based off of demonic possession. So, 
you may not know the answer to this, but what would be the difference between this and pleading innocent due to insanity? Like, oh. I feel like that would fall within this, right? Well, you definitely have to go through psychiatric evaluation for the well, insanity thing. Okay. Um, they probably could have tried to do something like that, but it's going to take a twist. So what happened is they claimed that there was this demonic presence that took over Arnie, which made him do something that he would never, ever do before. Okay. And he had character witnesses. And to back up this whole like theory that there was a demonic presence, Ed and Lorraine Warren mentioned to the judge, we have facts, right. we, have we have proof, proof. because we interviewed David, which is his girlfriend's younger brother mm -hmm. and we have character witnesses and stories that we can tell you actually i didn't mention this part earlier but i should have they did an exorcism multiple times on david right and the church was involved with it and they had people from the vatican come over right so they everything is documented everything by the book exactly allegedly right. because it later comes out that the church was like uh we did not do exorcisms oh. on david it's it's a thing and that's why i'm trying not to bring in Right. Too much of them, but they basically like are backing up the story. Like we have a defense that we can build around demonic possession, and they also mention like you know if we have church that's involved in a jury trial and stuff like that. Like we can argue like religious aspects of things. Why can't we argue this portion mm -hmm. of it all, like demonic possession? Now this goes up to the judge, and the judge is reviewing the material and. He's hearing that there are character witnesses and whatnot and that there is evidence. And his attorney, Martin Manella, is like, we can prove it. This is a strategy. Like, we have the evidence. And basically, the judge throws it out. He's like, we're not going to try a case with demonic possession being the lead defense mm -hmm, in trying to get him out of this yeah. murder. It's just not going to happen. And I understand it, and it makes complete sense. He, he just basically said there's a lack of physical evidence, and we really can't prove it. Character witnesses, it just turns into a he said, she said thing. And right, and I mean, to play devil's advocate here, like, let's say this wasn't the case, right? And he did this, like, fully conscious. I mean, mm. he could definitely use this, something, this this event that was very well documented. There's lots of corroborators, right? Mm -hmm. uh, lots of witnesses to kind of like, yes, I agree, this definitely did happen in terms of David's story. And he could use this as, as an excuse, like, oh, um, I'm just going to go rob a bank or I'm just going to go slaughter someone. And, oh, it's because I was possessed because it transferred over to me. Right? Exactly. So I definitely see where the judge is coming from there. Well, yeah, and honestly, without the proof, like, how are we going to make this argument? So they end up deciding that the best way to try the case and have a defense, try to save Arnie from going to jail, is pleading self-defense. And they think, like, you know, well, we still have character witnesses that we can say that, you know... Wait, so are they planning to lie that he attacked someone? Because how well, does that fall under self-defense? Because he's defending Debbie. Because she was being mm, harassed. Okay, feels like a stretch. Well, th the whole thing is lightly a stretch. I mean, if right. we're trying to push demonic possession, I think that they were better off trying I mean, to claim self-defense. Like, yeah, I think, best case scenario, they should have fled insanity... I mean, if they think... It's also the 80s, like you said. Right. We don't know how insanity worked. Because I think also at the time, a lot of people were claiming insanity, especially with the big well, serial killers at the time. I actually just learned about the first case in the U.S. where they pled insanity. Mm -hmm. Innocence because of insanity or whatever, however you say it. But it was similar to this. This man was very... I mean, I don't want to get too much into that, but okay. it was very similar where this guy started... It was gradual changes. Mm -hmm. There was lots of stressors in his life that really triggered these gradual behavioral changes mm -hmm. and this first occurred i think in the uk 
Oh. And then a few years after, I think two, three years after, uh-huh. it started becoming more prevalent in American cases where they were pleading guilty by insanity or whatever, innocence by insanity, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. So um, I feel like they had the best chance by using the insanity plea. And even if they had taken him, I mean, these dark black spots in his memory could have easily been associated with something like, I don't know. You can also argue that. Borderline personality disorder. You can also argue there's alcohol involved. Right, absolutely. He might not remember because he's drunk. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's going to bring in another part of the prosecutors. Is that the right term for the people who are going against them? Yes. I'm trying to get all into my uh, SVU law and order. (laughs) So they actually make an argument saying, well, it's not self-defense. What we really think happened when they made their timeline, they think that Debbie was in a relationship with Alan. Oh, and she was so she's also like in, an affair. Exactly. And she's also in a relationship with Arnie. Arnie at the time, the only reason that Debbie knew who Arnie was is she used to babysit his younger siblings. Okay. And so that's how she got to know him and they started their relationship. But the police and this timeline that they created is thinking that she was having an extracurricular activities with Alan and in a blind rage. Arnie lost his cool. Oh, okay. And then, I see. Yeah, and use the situation to just okay take him out. And that's the prosecution strategy. Yes. So, what, like, heat of the moment. Heat of the moment. They were drinking. They were friends, but something must have slipped out, and he didn't like that his and he girlfriend. Out about this affair. Yes. And, okay. I mean, that's a that's a. It's a it's a solid it's logical a, yeah. like if you're thinking of like logical things it's harder to argue demon possession. Right, I mean that makes more sense than demonic possession. Absolutely. Yeah, but also like you said they should have tried to plead insanity. Anyway, how this all ends up laying out is that he goes to jail for first degree murder, and he's sentenced to a ten to twenty year deal and stint in prison, and he ends up doing a little bit less than five. Oh. Now, during this time, some things happened because a lot of people wanted to know what actually happened to Arnie Johnson. Mm -hmm. And he and his girlfriend, Debbie, they get married. She stands by her man. Yeah, good for her. Yeah, she's like, nope, (laughs) it was the demons. And, And that's fine. Like, it just goes to show, like, he had her back in this whole outline of things. Right, I mean... And then, well, she stuck by the word. Yeah, and I think in terms of supportive partners, they are... Supporting each other. each other. Yeah. Unfortunately, somebody had to suffer the consequences of that support, allegedly. Sorry, Alan. R.I.P. <laughs> but it wasn't just that. So he ends up finishing his high school degree while he's in jail. He, you know, gets married. And when he gets out, they end up moving in together and they have a full life. They have, oh, wow. I think they have kids and a, a lot of things just seem to dissipate with the demonic presence. Right. In terms of like, Nobody has any more information. Like, what happened to David? We don't know. You, like you said, there was a gap there. We know that he went through these exorcisms. We know that, according to Ed and Lorraine Warren, and according to Arnie himself, he challenged the demons. The demons allegedly transferred over. Then, after all this demon transferring, somebody was murdered. You know, this really took a turn because when we first mm-hmm. started this episode, I was 100% convinced, like, no, this is real. Yes. Like, Ed and Lorraine are the real deal. But now that we're going through, like, what really happened and the facts, it was very convenient for Arnie to commit this homicide, essentially, mm-hmm. and then blame it on demonic possession. And then 
actually just kidding. I'm going to go ahead and live my entire life without any more instances of demonic possession ever and live a very full, complete life. But mm-hmm. sorry, Alan, my man, you had to be sacrificed. That's, it's interesting. Like, like it's just very coincidental. Like how it all progressed initially, right. like where it's like a little boy and he's going through this thing. And, and I think, not that I don't believe it, but I feel like there was definitely more evidence, more proof. With David. With David. Like mm-hmm. that, I feel like cannot be faked. I mean, obviously the movie, mm-hmm. it's not real footage. So and it, I even said like, give this little boy an Oscar because the acting was top, top tier, notch, good for yeah. him. Mm-hmm. But I mean, in terms of like the real deal, I feel like it'd be hard to fake something, something like that, especially with so many witnesses. But when it's, for some reason, when it's transferred over to Arnie, it's like the demon almost like loses interest, I guess, in like doing more harm. And I remember watching the clip just now and thinking like, oh no, Arnie, you idiot. You're so much bigger than this little boy. You're going to do so much more damage than this little boy ever could do. Do you remember that I also said that uh, David had foretold that there was going to be a murder in the future? Oh, that's a good point. When he said that, I was like, this is, it's just like you said, convenient. Right. And it's not for me to take away from this demonic, you know, possession, because it could literally still be that. Right, yeah. It's, I think at some point we start to think of things like logically. Like when I said the timeline that the police created, you were like, okay, wait, hold on. That does kind of make sense. Mm-hmm. If she, if that was her boss, she worked there. He had a house there, you know, right. and whatever. They could be friends, but still, like, a lot of things were of convenience. But also, we get this timeline where things slowly progress with David, where we hear these stories, where it's building up, where it's getting worse, where it's getting worse. Whereas for Arnie, he takes it on, he sees the demon, and then murders, and then done. Right, and then the demon's like, all right, peace out, on to the next one, like... And I think that's a really interesting perspective because I think it kind of opens the door to other people, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a well enough corroborated story, you could use this excuse to get out of murder as well. Exactly. Or like commit a murder and just like Arnie serve, what, five years and then be out and live a completely full life, right? Or if you do it like a better defense strategy where you do plead guilty by insanity, Mm -hmm. right? And then... You're like, okay, I'm going to do, like, maybe three years in a mental hospital, and then I can recover, right, air quotes around recover, Mm -hmm. and then just go on and lead a full life. Yeah. So I think this is a really interesting... I think it set a precedence. Yeah. Where it's like, we have a limit. Mm -hmm. We believe a lot, but we'll have a limit. And it's not to say that everyone went along with this, because it was later on that, remember, Debbie had siblings. So her brother... In addition to David, they wrote a book themselves. And they talked about the true events being that David was just suffering from a mental illness, from a learning disability. And that the Warrens came in and actually said, we can spin this into a story that'll make you all millionaires. Or I think, conversely, it could be like if you're looking at from, right, defend in defense of the Warrens. Mm -hmm. They are genuinely trying to help because I feel like, like I said, a lot of these cases are really hard to, you know, not fake, but like come up with excuses for. Mm -hmm. And I'm the type of person that if I see something, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. Mm -hmm. So I've seen this kind of thing and it's hard to really excuse it. But let's say the Warrens do come in and are genuinely trying to help. But I think by slapping a label on it, this kid kind of falls into that, you know, like oh, it's a demonic possession, I have to act the way a demonic possession would be. Or the way I think a demonic possession would be. 
And it just kind True. of feeds into it. It's like a vicious when, cycle. Yeah, when you give, like you said, a label, then right, you start yeah. to have the symptoms with mm-hmm. it. So the brothers go into this detail where they were like, you know, David just had a, a spill where he was just going through something. He's gotten the proper treatment. He's fine now. He's he's fine. And they just said that the family was manipulated by the Warrens into mm-hmm. this whole, like, we can sell books, which they did sell a book. And when they did sell that book, they paid the family $2,000. I don't know how much that is in the 80s, but... I mean, well, I guess I'd still take $2,000. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But, <laughs> but it, it was so traumatic that the family, the Glatzels, like, they had to move out of the town. They couldn't oh, wow. just live there because, like I said, murder didn't happen in this town for almost 200 years until this happened. Demonic, you know, possession as a defense never happened yeah, in American history. Time. And then on top of that, if David really was going through something, like, now he's just a pariah in this town where everyone's just going to come over and be like, that's the kid, you know, that's the one that was possessed. And that's the family where the the girlfriend's, you know, daughter's husband, boyfriend is in jail for murder. Well, that's what I was going to say, even Arnie. I mean, even though he didn't serve that full 10 to 20 years or however much he was sentenced for, he did a substantial, I mean, five years is five years, right? Well, it's a murder. You took someone's life. I mean, how right. do we even put... But also, but... like, coming out of prison and, like, it's... You know, it's only five years, so he's able to, you know, keep going with his life. And mm-hmm. like you said, he got married and had a family. But they really had to almost detach themselves from that, right? I'm assuming they also moved because there's no way he could go back to that small town like nothing happened. Like, no, I didn't. Exactly. Just, surprise, well, I'm back from prison where I'm because I murdered someone. You know, like, I, it's very traumatizing. Yeah, and for the girls, too. Absolutely. It's just the whole thing. It was intense and it's easy to see how they'd make a movie out of it because they wrote books about it yeah. they had that you know talk show they made a mm-hmm. tv movie and now they have the conjuring the third movie which right a whole franchise a whole just franchise from... yeah just from this one story mm-hmm. so if the premise was to make millions of dollars well mission accomplished exactly i mean the family may not be the ones who see it but i mean well and i think this is also it's also dangerous too because I mean, I think that Ed and Lorraine Warren, not necessarily them as a couple or, like, them as people, but, like, their abilities, their skills, their skill sets, that's, that's genuine, right? They're genuinely mm-hmm. trying to help people. I like that you said that, yeah. And I think it's real. Like, I, I don't think that you can negate that things like this occur. Mm-hmm. I think it's just such a bummer that they capitalize off of it and they try and they exactly. sell it to Hollywood to make all this money because it really... Takes away from it. It it, it decredits it, right? Takes away a whole lot of credibility. Well, she said in this interview, the one that I watched on YouTube, which I'll post a video on um, the website for you all to look. But she did say, like, we initially heard that it was a mental illness or a learning disability. So we reached out to one of the fathers in the church that had a kid who had a similar set of illness. Now, I'm not sure how you were like, that kid has a mental illness. This person, you know, their child has a mental illness, too. Where are the symptoms? Because we just want to compare. Because mm-hmm. she was under the impression, like, maybe it's a medication dosage that's, like, causing him harm. I don't know that he initially got, like, a full-on diagnosis that he had a mental illness or a learning disability. but Or if it was just, like, a premise. Well, and like, I'll be the first to say, you know, I work with kids with all kinds of disabilities. Kids, teenagers, and adults. There's no learning disability that's going to cause side effects this severe by any means, right? Yeah. There's going to be a lot of factors that play into it. Mm -hmm. Like, I think a lot more research should be done into the factors that could contribute to something like this. Like, 
were there issues at home, right? Mm -hmm. Was he maybe being abused at home? Was he being neglected? Mm -hmm. Was this happening because he felt like he wasn't getting enough attention, right? You mentioned that there's more siblings. Was he a middle child? This is more common with a middle child. And I'm by no means an expert, but I feel like... Those are all good points. I, I feel like they're worth looking into. But again, the warrants were like, oh, this looks like it could fit into this very specific category of demonic possession. Let's not look into any of the other factors and just dive right in and just just slap this label on it and monetize it. Exactly. And, and like we said, at the end of the day, that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. Money was made off of this story. So it's unfortunate that Alan had lost his life. And I don't know that we really feel like justice was given because everyone else's lives moved on. His didn't. Mm -hmm. um, I'll also say it's unfortunate that David and the Glassell family also had to go through all of this stuff. That's just not a fun scenario. And for Arnie, like, I couldn't imagine ever being the person to take another person's life, let alone having to live with it and then move on. You know, it's just, it's just not fair all around. And if it really was having to do, at the end of the day, with the demonic possession... Well, I'm glad that that story is no longer being relevant within their lives and the timeline of the lives that they all lived. But for that moment, from the 1980s to the middle of the 1981, when the things and events were taken and then transpired into what eventually turned into a murder, it was big. It changed the history in Connecticut, in this small town where people still consider it a great place to live today. So... At the end of the day, this is a story, the true story behind the movie, The Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It. Arnie Johnson, a 19-year-old boy in 1981, murdered Alan Bono. Unfortunately, the events were caused and thrown up to demon possession. The truth, we might not know, but the movie's out there. This podcast was created to tell you the true story. So if you watch it, now you know the backstory behind it, but I think that's the end of today's episode. So, Estrella, what do you think? Oh! <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's a note to Crime Junkies, if you didn't know. We love them. So this is a Crime Junkies moment with true crime. That's why I was like, she's the perfect person because it's a true crime, but it's mixed with supernatural. And it, this is so different from The Conjuring 2. That, that possession was intense. Yeah. And then even in the first Conjuring, oh, we went through a lot of stuff learning that story, too. But basically... Watch the movies. We'll have our movie Monday. Enjoy this episode. If you have questions, please feel free to send them in. We're going to answer them the best that we can. Thank you, Australia, for being here. Thank you. This is a really good episode. It definitely made yeah. me think a lot. So You had the best commentary. I truly appreciate <laughs> it. But I guess with all that said, you're going to see all of our source material, pictures, the videos, the books, and everything on the website at www.campfireadventurespodcast.com. I'm going to be posting more stuff, hopefully this week, about the um, episodes and about the people involved with it on our Instagram and Facebook at Campfire Adventures Podcasts. And then, you know, this is the end of the episode. We were chilling in a parking lot because we had ice cream and why not? But we're chilling around the portable campfire with the boys and uh, the, every noise you heard is because we are, like I said, chilling in a parking lot. But with all that said, I'm going to say bye. So whether you listen to this in the morning or the evening, have a good morning or good evening. Bye. Bye.